1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All right, good afternoon. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, we're almost done here with our series through 1 Timothy. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll start working through the text. Um, Father, thank you so much for this, um, this book that we've had the privilege of studying over the last um, several weeks and months. Uh, I pray, God, that you would uh, just continue to, to bless our study uh, in this great little book, and that you would just feed our souls, uh, and particularly from this text, Lord, uh, help us to see uh, more clearly um, uh, how... Uh, of little worth the things of this world are in light of your glory and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Paul begins his closing remarks to Timothy in, in, this, in this passage. Next week, we're going to look at his, at his final closing remarks. But he begins his closing remarks uh, to Timothy here and to the church in Ephesus. And in these verses, he's addressing those who, uh, who are rich in the church or well-off, wealthy. Um, I know a lot of us in this room would say, uh, well, that means Paul's not speaking to me, right? Uh, because I'm not rich. I'm struggling to keep up. Up just paying my own personal bills. Uh, and while I understand that there are very real financial issues that are hard for many of us to work through, let me ask you to consider that within the grand scope of things, the fact that you and I live where we live puts us in this highly privileged class of people, doesn't it? I think sometimes we look at other parts of the world and we say things like, man, it's strange. It's, 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 it's kind of weird and, and sad how they, how they live that way. And I think they would look at us and say, man, it's kind of weird that you guys live that way with all your things, right? With all the stuff you got going on. Most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Just think about that. Less than $2 a day. And so by the time you buy your first cup of coffee of the day, you spent probably twice as much as the average person on the planet makes in a day. And again, I'm not trying to diminish real financial problems that some of us might be dealing with uh, in this room. I'm not trying to lay on guilt, uh, guilt trip anybody here. But generally speaking, we have to admit that we live in the most affluent society and the most affluent culture in the history of the world. And so God's words here are to all of us in this room, no matter how little we relatively have in comparison to others in our neighborhoods or maybe even in this congregation, Paul's words here are for all of us. I'll give you the big idea of this text on the front end, it's this, that earthly gain will eventually fade, but our good works and generous giving yield an eternal gain that never fades. Earthly gain will eventually fade, but our good works and generous giving will yield an eternal gain that never fades. 
Now, you might be wondering, why is it that Paul's repeating a word here on materialism? Like, didn't we just talk about that two weeks ago? You guys remember that? All right. Of course you do, right? You remember every sermon you hear here, right? But uh, when, when he addressed this in verses uh, 5 through 10, like a couple weeks ago, when we talked about contentment, um, you might be asking, like, why does he talk about materialism then? And then last week, you know, he talked about the good fight, fighting the good fight of the faith, and then he returns to this topic of materialism. It actually makes sense if you kind of follow Paul's argument here. He talked about, a couple weeks ago, he talked about how contentment, in terms of material things, contentment is a form of what he called godliness. Contentment is a form of godliness. And so last week, we saw that godliness is something that we must fight for. And as we'll see this week, one of the ways that you fight for godliness and fight for contentment is by giving generously. Because if God truly satisfies our soul's deepest longings, then we have no reason to crave the fading pleasures of this world. And so as we work through our text, it's going to work out uh, to give you three points, three points on three ways to live for eternal gain versus earthly gain. Here's point number one. Flee self-focus. Flee self-focus. Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which is another word for um, uh, proud or self-focused or, or confident, right? It's that kind of haughty, not like our pastor's a haughty, but like that kind of haughty. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, nor, you're like, obviously you're kidding. Uh, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You see, there's a subtle danger with living in constant comfort where you become proud. You begin to think yourself as better than other people. That's what worldly wealth does. Worldly wealth is delusional. It says, I've got more than other people, so I must be better than them. I have more than them, so I must be superior to them. And God must support my superiority. Otherwise, I wouldn't be so blessed in this way. And shadows of this can be found in, in middle-class churches like ours, where an air of superiority develops between us and the way that we look at the poor or marginalized peoples, where we find ourselves not wanting to connect with those who maybe have more difficult financial struggles than we do. This was a danger in Ephesus, where pa Timothy is pastoring. Ephesus was a wealthy city where, uh, when, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. It was considered uh, to be the bank of Asia at that time. Like all the money flowed through there. Uh, there, there, there was a, the worship of the false god, Greek goddess Artemis, uh, was popular in the uh, uh, Ephesus region. Um, and so the worship of false gods actually helped the city acquire lots of different wealth through tourism as people would travel in to see all the sites, uh, to see all the statues and idols and to pay their dues, uh, and so that, that pumped a lot of money, a lot of commerce, uh, economic gain to the region. And so Ephesus was, the church in Ephesus was a church that struggled with worldly gain. And one of the things that, that happened with that is because a lot of the, the, the church members in Ephesus were, were wealthy, they started to look at others as less than. I think the same danger applies to the middle-class American church. Prosperity devours a healthy church culture. 
There's an old preacher who once wrote that religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. It's kind of morbid, right? But he, he's noting here that this common effect of Christi- that Christianity has on societies where authentic conversion to Jesus starts to change people's lives, and then all of a sudden the corruption and bad habits start to fall away, and they become better workers because of that, better managers because of that, as they live out the scriptures. And so what happens is, is uh, once a society has been sort of inoculated with Christianity, society experiences this economic growth and prosperity. But then eventually the prosperity and material wealth begins to devour the Christian faith because the people there have become so comfortable with wealth and convenience that they no longer feel the need of their God. Did you know that Jesus famously said that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's true. He said that when he said, and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why did he say that? It's because wealthy Christians often grow blind to the very goodness of God. They become blind to their dependence on him. Because no one is genuinely praying prayers like, give us today our daily bread. That's not us. When was the last time you prayed, God, feed us today? We don't know where our food's going to come from. Would you just feed us today? I've had the opportunity to, to, to go to uh, the country of Rwanda on a few different uh, short-term missions trips. And one of the things that just strikes me with the people who live um, out in uh, the rural villages of Rwanda is that when you're praying with them um, for, like, over the meal, they pray that prayer. God, give us today our daily bread. Or they'll pray, God, thank you for giving us today our daily bread as their meal's in front of them. And many of them, as they would pray that prayer, thank you for this meal, they'd have like tears in their eyes. Because maybe they didn't have a meal the day before or the day before that. But see, here in the West, in the middle class West, we don't think we need God's provision for our food. We just take it for granted. We don't think we need God's provision for our homes and for our daily needs. We just take it for granted. And what that does is this creates in us this false image of, of security. Like no one looks at South Orange County and says, hey, those people are needy. Those people are needy. But, but you know who does? God does. Because Jesus said, it is hard for the rich person and the wealthy person. It's hard for the comfortable person to get into the kingdom of God. So when God peers over the mountains into the Saddleback Valley, he says, these people are the needy ones. They're the needy ones because we're so easily swindled into believing that we are self-sufficient in and of ourselves. And we're too proud to see our real spiritual need. In the book of Revelation, in the letter to Laodicea, uh, I think this is in Revelation 2, uh, uh, they, they, this is called the lukewarm Christian. You guys have heard of that term, the lukewarm Christian? That's the person who's only a Christian by name, but when you look at their life, you see there's no real evidence of knowing God, desiring him, enjoying him, and seeking to, to please him. 
It's hard to find lukewarm Christians in third world countries. You won't find lukewarm Christians where persecution for the Christian faith is a real threat. But man, lukewarm Christians are dime a dozen in wealthy countries like ours because we'll live for comfort and convenience more than we'll live for Christ. And so Paul has a challenge here. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He's telling Christians not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of earthly wealth. Sometimes we place our hope in the wrong things. One thing that earthly wealth can tempt us to do is to find our security and hope in that earthly wealth itself. You remember Jesus' story of uh, of the rich young fool? He was rich, he was wealthy, he was satisfied. He found security in the things that he hoarded for himself. And Jesus says, man, a person like that's not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you got to flee from self-focus. you got to flee from being self-sufficient, from being self-confident. So what do you do instead? This is point number two. You focus on God. So you flee from self-focus, and number two, you focus on God. Read the rest of verse 17 with me. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And here's where the alternative is. He says, But instead, focus on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The reality is that today's earthly gains are tomorrow's losses. And so Paul urges Timothy to charge the Ephesian church to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice Paul doesn't say charge them to forsake their wealth, to just, to just give it all away, to, 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 to have nothing to do with wealth. No, he says don't charge them to not place their hope in it. That's the key. It's not that wealth in and of itself is evil or bad, all right? Solomon was wealthy. Lydia was wealthy. She helped, uh, Phoebe was healthy or wealthy. You you see so many people uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament who had all kinds of earthly riches that supported and funded the mission of God. And so it's not wealth in and of itself, but it's placing our hope in that wealth that we are to forsake. Jim Carrey once famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. What Jim Carrey's getting at is that there's something beyond significance, beyond security, beyond earthly riches. He already had all those things. Carrie, he's already had significance and security and riches. He's got a successful and privileged life, but he knows there's got to be something more because those things, they just don't satisfy. They just don't answer the question that our souls are constantly longing after. Instead, Paul says, place your hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's reminding us that that all the good that we have comes from God alone. James says that every good gift comes from above, the Father, uh, from the Father of lights. So whenever we enjoy 
what we have, we must remember it is God who has first given that thing that we enjoy. In other words, we start to develop thankful hearts. Chesterton says it this way. He says, when it comes to, to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. There's nothing that you enjoy or benefit from or have received that cannot be traced back to the generous hand of God. And Christians, above all, should get this. We shouldn't have to be begged and reminded to be thankful. Gratitude should just be a natural way of life for the Christian because we know that literally everything we know, everything we have, everything we see and enjoy and have received is not of our own doing, but from the gift of God. Turn to Romans chapter 14, verse 6, if you have a Bible. Romans chapter 14, verse 6 through 8. Paul says this. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, the reason that you give thanks to God is because God is the, is, is the sum total of your entire life. He's all that you know and it's all for him. And so when you get out of the bed in the morning, give thanks. God has given you another day of life that you don't deserve, and so give thanks to him for that. When you go to work, God provided that job for you, and that means you get to work that job well. Give thanks to him for that. When you eat anywhere from two, three, four meals throughout the day, give thanks to God for them. Do you know what thankfulness does? It, it reorients your heart so that you remember that God is the one that you worship and not these things that you're enjoying. Some of us treat our wealth and possessions as our functional saviors, where we get our whole sense of identity from our things. Who we are and whether or not we're okay is dependent on, on the things that we own and the status that we have. But this posture of thankfulness reorients us and sort of wakes us up from that deception. It reminds us that our things are not our gods. They're mere gifts from God. God is our God. He's the Lord our God. He's the one that we find our sense of identity in. He's the one we go to to tell us who we are. The one we go to to tell us whether or not we're okay and how to find life and hope and meaning and forgiveness in this world. The human heart was made to worship something outside of itself. And so it's constantly looking, searching around for something to delight in, for a place to rest, for an object to hope in. But the scriptures teach us that we're going to either look to God or something or someone else to make us feel significant, secure, and at peace. And man, he couldn't be saying it any clearer. God himself is the perfect meter of all our needs. He meets them in the fullest sense, in the greatest sense. Jesus is speaking to a woman 
who has a lot of great needs. She's trying to find meaning in her life. She's trying to find purpose in her life um, because of all the mistakes that she's made. And, and everybody is, is, is giving their opinion about who she is and what she needs to do. And at, to the woman, to the Samaritan woman at the well, in John 4, 14, Jesus says this. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is he saying? Jesus is saying, I've got the thing that your soul longs for. I've got the thing that your soul thirsts for. See, this isn't just a water that your body needs. This is a water that satisfies your soul, the deepest yearnings of your life, living water, he says. You know that feeling like when you're, you're just parched and thirsty, when you're just so thirsty, and then you get your hands on a cup of water and you drink it, and it's just like, ah, oh, like that's just what I needed. Jesus satisfies our souls in that way. It's getting to the place where you say, I don't have to look anywhere else for satisfaction. I don't have to look anywhere else for life and for purpose and meaning. Especially in our culture, like we can go an embarrassing amount of time without expressing or admitting our great need for God and his presence. When we're driven by the idols of power and success and comfort and convenience, we divert our eyes from the brilliant creator God to the dull light of created things. But we were made to behold God, to see him, to gaze at him, to marvel at his beauty, to behold his transforming power, marvel at all his successes, enjoy the comfort of the Prince of Peace. The scriptures say that he is the living water that quenches the deepest longings of our souls and that going anywhere else is like drinking mud when you could drink from a spring of purified water. And so the question our text asks is, where do you place your hope? I want you to ask that. Where is it that you place your hope? On what does your hope truly depend? If Jesus, who knows all things and therefore can call out any lie, if he were to sit across from you and ask you that question, where do you place your hope? What would your answer be? Maybe another question to consider is, has the pride of wealth and privilege darkened your soul? Do you somehow find yourself inadvertently thinking yourself better than those who are less fortunate than you? Because of the social class that they belong to? Because of their marginalized position in society? Focus on God. Flee from self-focus. And then you are free. You are free to not worship the things of this earth. 
but instead to give your life wholly and completely to the God who made you and saved you and then calls you to give generously. That's point number three. Give generously. Give generously. We see this in our last two verses, verses 18 and 19, which say that they, the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, because of God's generosity towards us, we have a special responsibility to do good with the means that God has given us. The first thing he tells us to do is to be rich in good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. Why? Because good works make God look great. They make him look awesome, and he is awesome. It gives him the glory due his name. Now, you might not think that you have much to offer. You might think your life is a total mess, but I want you to ask yourself, has Jesus done anything in my life? Has he done anything for me? Has he changed my desires? Has he changed my heart? Has he made me born again? If Jesus has done something for you, if he has done something in you, then you bet he will do something through you. He promises. This is a key part of your calling as a Christian, a key reason that you were saved. That passage we read earlier for our assurance of grace in Ephesians 2. We read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but I want us to look now at the, the next verse in verse 10. This is a famous passage, the entire beginning of Ephesians 2. It all talks about the glory of the gospel and how we've been brought from death into life. We used to be spiritually dead, but now we've been quickened and awakened, revived to new life. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, made born again for good works. And that word for workmanship is a beautiful word in the Greek. It doesn't show up often, but in the Greek, it's the Greek word poema uh, where we get the word poem from. And so that, that idea of we are God's workmanship is that we are God's poem. We are God's, <coughs> excuse me, work of art. We're work of God. And a good artist enjoys his art. He considers it valuable because it's an expression of his inner being. And so I want you to stop and just, just think about the implications of that. God, this divine artist, and you, Christian, are his masterpiece, his work of art. When Jesus died, it wasn't just to say, this is how much I love you. He died to pay for your sins, to atone for them, and to make you new, to make you born again, a new creature, so that 
Now your life can be a work of God used to make him known, to show off God's grace, to show off his workmanship. God's the divine painter. He's the divine sculptor. And we get to be his pieces of art that put on his glory and his grace. Display it. And so Paul says, be rich in good works. He also says, let the rich be generous and ready to share. The basic principle is you'll either squander your wealth or you'll use it for good. You might remember Jesus' story about the faithful and unfaithful stewards in Matthew 25. Just I'll quickly summarize it, but basically Jesus tells this, this story about a man who goes on vacation. And he calls his servants over and he says, look, I'm going to entrust you with my possessions while I'm gone. And he gives them different amounts of, of money. He gives them different amounts of what he call, the Bible calls talents. That's monetary uh, to each servant. Two of them took the money given by them by their master, and they invested it. They cultivated it. But one of them squandered that trust. Rather than use it wisely, he buried it because he was scared. The master comes back and calls that servant, that last servant, wicked and lazy. And it's clear when Jesus is speaking in this parable that, that he's speaking about himself in the parable, that he's the one who is leaving and will one day return. And that while he's gone, he's entrusted his possessions to his servants. That's us. To watch over them while he's gone. And Jesus' point is that we are not to squander the resources and gifts that God has given us, but rather we're to invest them for the purposes of the kingdom. That's what stewardship is. Stewardship is the careful use and management of someone else's possessions that you have been entrusted with. Stewards don't own anything. Everything a steward does is in service to the ultimate owner. And Jesus says, look, this is how the kingdom of God works. He's the owner, and we're the stewards. God has entrusted every one of his servants, you and me, with the things that he wants us to have until he comes back to claim them for himself. And so all of your life is a stewardship, not an ownership. Everything you have is on loan. And the way that you know it's on loan is because it's all temporary. You don't get to keep it. One day you'll have to leave it behind, or before then it'll leave you. It's on loan given by the owner who will one day come back and lay claim to it. There's not a single thing in this universe, not a single atom in this entire universe that doesn't belong to God. And if that's true, thing, the same goes for every penny. And so as faithful stewards, we understand this basic principle and because we understand it, we give generously to God's purposes rather than to our preferences. And if we do this, if we do these, it's being rich in good works and in generous giving, we'll yield an eternal wealth that never fades. Look at verse 19 again. He says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, we must deliberately put our hope in and lay our treasure in, not the things of this world, but the treasures of heaven. 
what happens is when you've been blessed with a lot of different earthly goods, the tendency is to be preoccupied with those earthly goods. You get preoccupied with earthly savings and earthly inheritance and earthly well-being. And Paul's saying that when you are in that condition where you have a lot, you need to consciously fight to lay up treasure for the future, for eternity, because that is where true life is found. And Christians must take hold of real life, not just what appears to be real life. We're to use possessions and love people, not use people and love possessions. There's an old preacher joke where we say you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because you can't take anything with you when you die. The idea is that no one can bring material wealth into eternity. There's no banks or parking garages What you have won't change. What you have right now is not going to change your circumstances when you die. It won't put you in a better or worse position in the afterlife. So Paul says, living for things is not real wealth. It's poverty. Instead, store up the kind of riches that last forever. So if you were to take all of your things that you own, Everything that you own, and and let's just say everything that right now you're hoping that you would own, right? Like that, that, that thing that you're saving for, that thing that you're wondering if you should finance for. Take all the things that you currently owned and wished you owned and put them all on this side of the room, right? Pretend they could fit, right? And you take all your good works and put them on this side of the room. And then fast forward, fast forward a hundred years, a few hundred years. And what you would find is that everything on this side is rusted over while everything on this side is shining brightly. Take hold of real life, Paul says, not just what appears to be life. It's in the kingdom that only true life is found and seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And so my encouragement to you is I want you to have a plan for investing in things that really matter. Here's a basic plan that you might want to consider just as we close. First, number one, maybe sit down and ask the question, what is it that I have that I don't need? What are the things that I have that I don't need that perhaps maybe somebody else in my neighborhood or community or in this congregation uh, could, could make better use of than I could? Number two, maybe ask the question, how much of my income am I going to give away? We talk about this every week as we respond to the gospel message that we give generously because God has first generally, generously given to us And so how much of our income are we going to give away? First to our church family, and then maybe to to missionaries or other causes and and nonprofits and individuals uh, that you might want to support. Then number three, determine what sacrifices you're going to make to get there. Because the Bible calls us to sacrificial giving. So it calls us to, to, to give in a way where we do have to sacrifice, where it's a bit of a stretch, where we're going to have to trust God to provide. 
And so determine what sacrifices you're going to make to get there. What changes are you going to make maybe in, in your budget to make sure that you can give more to kingdom purposes? And lastly, just follow through. Do what you got to do to follow through. Maybe, maybe let uh, uh, a friend know or your home group leader know, like, hey, this is how I'd like to be generous in 2023. Would you hold me accountable to that? In all of this, I want us to remember where it is that we find our greatest treasure. Where do we find our greatest treasure? Our greatest treasure is found in Christ Jesus himself. See, in Jesus Christ, you have the only wealth that really, truly matters. When you look at what he did for you, you find yourself so satisfied in your soul that it drains all the power out of money and possessions. Money becomes just a thing that you steward. It no longer becomes your sense of identity and esteem and security. It's just money. And you're happy to give it away. Jesus is the one who emptied himself of all his heavenly possessions to turn us who were his enemies into his friends so we could have a forever home in heaven, one that never fades and goes away. Only by going to the cross could Jesus do that. And now, because he has, because he has gone to the cross in our place, because he has gone to the cross for our sins, we can know that we are going to last forever, that our joy is going to endure forever, and that we're going to live with him in his forever kingdom for all eternity. And we're going to treasure him above all forever and ever. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.